JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Pipeline, bracketologist for CBS. We know him well. Jerry Palm is with us. Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm fine. I was not one of the 1600. You weren't. Did you? Um, I, was, I was not there. Have you been to the combine before in your no, life? I, no. It's, too well, busy. it's usually at a bad time for me to even consider going, and I don't think it's the kind of thing I would do anyway. Um, I know a little bit of your background. So to become a bracketologist right there, are you just good, analytically speaking, with numbers? Are you high-level, elite-level numbers guy? Well, yes, I suppose. But Son of a gun. That's not really, I'm jealous. That's not really it. It's more about understanding the process and what's important and how to apply it. Um, you know, it's still a subjective process. You can't just sit there and look at numbers and – and make decisions. You have to actually watch these teams play because the committee's watching them play. So, not, but I'm one guy, not twelve. So it's hard. And you know, I've got family and stuff. <laughs> I can't watch everybody, <laughs> but you know, I watch as much as I can. And uh, you know, there's subjective judgments involved, and I try and see where they might, you know, go with someone whose resume maybe isn't completed because subjectively they just might think of that. Is there a team right now that you're skeptical with because you you feel, and maybe you're doubling back and watching some games too, but you feel you just haven't seen enough of their body of work? Is there a team like that out there right now? Um, I, was, I would say some of the Mountain West teams because they play late. Sure. Um, I, I've, I have actually focused on trying to stay up late and watch the, those games in Boise State, Utah State, um, Nevada. Um, you know, teams like that, I don't get to see as much as the West Coast, um, Bagger, St. Marys. You know, it's not too hard to find a Pac-12 game, but even those are, you know, during the week, they're pretty late. Um, but I've, I've seen, I think, most of the contenders now in those, in that part of the country. Uh, and then the smaller schools. I mean, the only time you ever get to see some of these smaller schools is during their conference tournaments, because otherwise they don't get much TV. So, um, you know, trying to watch uh, some, some of these teams that uh, you only get to see this week or last right yeah yeah i mean simo for example drake's probably something you've seen more than that drake drake was a ranked team to start and then had some trouble midway through and then caught five they're going to win a first round game and i'm sure we'll get that coming up in just a minute jerry palm joins us i did want to add to this when you have a season where obviously (laughs) everything's kind of bunched together i mean there's not too much clear cut yeah. going on here. Does that make it more difficult to do what you do in a season like this? Yes, because normally we can just write in ink a two or three of the number one seats. 
and it's and it's, you know and we could have done it a month ago because everybody saw it coming. You, you look at these teams and you think they're probably going to the elite eight because they're not going to see anybody who can beat them until then. Now you know th- this year all of the potential number one seeds have got enough you know matchup issues with certain teams that you can't say that about any of them. You know there's there's just no overwhelming favorite or two or three in this bracket, which should make for a very interesting tournament and make it kind of hard to predict which teams might get seated at the very top. It is weird. I have described this season the Big Ten Conference, and I have really associated that with the national landscape because they're very similar. There's just a lot of teams kind of bunched together. But in terms of the winner – with Purdue in mind, Jerry, uh, right now on that one line, what do they have to do to maintain just the minimum? The minimum in this conference tournament they need to do to maintain that one line? Win it. Probably have to win it. To stay because there? It's really competitive up there. It's, I mean, they could, they could not win it and still be a one. But if they win the conference tournament, they will be a one. So... You know, but the, the minimum once you once you don't do that, then you're depending on what other teams do. And as soon as you start depending on what other teams do, stuff happens. So and now that tends to be a bigger problem at the bottom of the bracket, where the teams are all the equally bad but in different ways. You know, as opposed to the top, where you you really got like maybe six or seven teams that could make a case for a one seed and produce one of them, um, which is why they may not have to win the tournament. But the only sure thing is to win the tournament. Who's breathing down their neck the most right now from that two UCLA. line? Um, and you that I was kind of talking about where subjectively people watch them play and like them and think they're pretty good. You look at their resume, they've got one win better than Kentucky, which is like a seven seed right now. And that, that was a Kentucky team that didn't know what they were doing yet. Um, but, you, you know, so UCLA, though, I mean, I saw them live. I saw them in L.A. when we were out for the football championship. And, you know, that's a good team. They've got veteran guards. I mean, there's a lot to like about that team. Um, but they don't have a resume that stacks up because of strength of schedule with, you know, Purdue and Kansas and Alabama. Uh, it's a better schedule than Houston, of course, um, which only has two losses. But, you know, Texas is in this picture as well. So it's just – you know, at that win over Arizona at home, which was is really nice for them. For me to make a case as a number one seed, I'd like to see them beat them again on a neutral court in the conference tournament. Um, if they don't get a shot at them or, you know, lose before they get a shot at them or lose to them, um, I think it's hard for them to be a one. So Jerry Palm of CBS, bracketologist on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. How you gauge Marquette right now on your two-line and you, you, you got UConn and Xavier. They're there, but not in, in close proximity. How are you, you viewing Marquette to this point moving forward? Boy, yeah, that's a team that nobody really expected uh, to be what they are. They lost at home to Wisconsin early on. Uh, Purdue beat them in non-conference play at, at Mackey. Uh, but they went out and won the Big East, which is really competitive. They've got five uh, very good teams in that league. Uh, Providence has fallen off a little bit, but that's what happens when you have five pretty good teams. Somebody's going to suffer for it, and Providence is the one that's suffering. But Creighton, Connecticut, Xavier, all having terrific seasons, and Marquette has emerged as the best of that bunch. Um, you know, and they picked up, uh, you know, some good wins also away. Like they beat 
I mean, away from the league. They, they beat Baylor, and that's that's a two or three seed level team as well. So, you know, Mark Shock has done a great job with that team. Uh, I don't know that he was ever a great fit at Texas, which is an underestimated uh, part of coaching hires. Is going to be a good fit at your school, but um, he's uh, found a home in, in uh, Milwaukee at Marquette and, and is doing a great job there. The bracketologist for CBS Sports. It is Jerry Palm on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. I got a similar question regarding IU as I asked you earlier about Purdue. How do they maintain? this four line if you're IU going into the Big Ten Conference Tournament? Well, they may not have to do as much to maintain it. In fact, if they won the Conference Tournament, they could conceivably move up. It depends on who you play to get there. And, uh, you know, like, obviously the the best win you can get in the Big Ten is Purdue, but if someone were to beat Purdue before IU played them, that doesn't help them as much. It helps if they're the team that beats Purdue a third time. Um, So, you know, that's but they could they could even move up from four uh, to maintain it. I mean, you know, you're talking about losing at some point, and then it depends on what other teams do, because you can't analyze seeding in a vacuum, uh, because it's never just about you. Rutgers and Michigan coming up on Thursday in Chicago. Or is that a, an elimination game of sorts here? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I have Rutgers further down the the list than I do Michigan, which is my last team in. Um, but I don't see how Michigan makes a tournament if they lose. And, you know, Rutgers definitely won't make the tournament if they lose, and they might not even make it if they win. Uh, it's also possible for Michigan to win and not make it. But it's, you yeah, know, so it's not a get, the win doesn't guarantee anything other than a chance to live and fight another day. Uh, but the loss is going to eliminate the loser. A lot has been made with the ACC conference tournament in Greensboro kicking off tomorrow um, regarding North Carolina and the the work that they need to do coming up here in the latter portions of this week. What do you think that they, they have to do to even get in at this point? Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, their biggest problem is they're like one in nine against quad one teams, and that's – pretty good evidence that you can't beat good competition on a regular basis. And I mean, they've got a home win over NC state that's quad two and they'll, they'll go to the tournament NC state will, but you know, North Carolina just can't seem to get the wins they need home or away. And now, you know, they, in the conference tournament, they have a bye, So they'll get a uh, Boston college game winner. And I, I forget who they play it might be Florida state or uh, um, no, I think it's Florida state. Or Louisville, um, yes. But you know, that, but that's a game that doesn't help them. That that that's just you got to win that game so you can get to the teams that do help you. And for them, the next game would be Virginia, a team they beat at home. They're one quad one win. Now, if they can get it on a neutral court as well, you know that would be a boost for them. Might be enough to put them in uh, as long as they don't take a loss to somebody that's non-tournament team. And you've got so much of that in the ACC this year. Their their next game after Virginia could be Clemson. Well, Clemson's got to win some games to try and get in too. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, a loss to Clemson would hurt them. And if they get by Clemson, well, then, you know, they could be in the championship game and and have an opportunity to win their way in. Uh, If they get that far, beating the best teams they can, they'll probably get in anyway. It is uh, Jay Palm with us. A friend of mine's Dusty May. He's the head coach of Florida Atlantic out of Conference USA. Yeah. Top 25 team for a lot of the season, especially in the past couple of months. Are they going to get an at-large regardless here, or do they need to to win or certainly maybe even win that tournament? Um, I would recommend win the tournament. Uh, I wouldn't rule out an at-large, 
they've got a couple of uh, of teams in their league to give them, um, you know, like quad one or two wins, like UAB and North Texas. And by the way, those are the teams that they can afford to lose to. I don't think they can afford to lose to anyone else. Uh, but Florida Atlantic, it's, it's funny because they have a pretty gaudy net ranking. They're in like the top 20 of the net. Um, but, you know, the, the the league, their schedule doesn't really measure up to that, but they win big, which is the net cares more about winning big than just winning. Um, but, I mean, they've had a really good year. They, they'll be dangerous to somebody if they get in the tournament, but their best wins are North Texas and UAB. So yeah. those are league games. They didn't beat anybody outside the league that gets the committee's attention, and that could be a problem for them if it's necessary. It's one of those things, too, where you know maybe maybe in the longer term, you, you, well, certainly you have second thoughts about how you schedule, I guess, right? Well, I guess. I mean, you know, you have to – scheduling is an art as yeah. much as it is a science. Um, like, you know, they, they scheduled Mississippi. Well, Mississippi turned out not to be good. Now, maybe they shouldn't have thought they were good. Um, Florida, they, they played a game at Florida, which you would think, well, Florida's usually pretty good. Well, they weren't this year. Uh, they won that game, not helping them much because Florida's not that good. So, uh, you know, it's, you know, those aren't bad games to schedule. And, it, you know, it's not easy to get games when you're the Florida Atlantic of the world and people think you can beat them on the um, But it's still a, uh, yeah, scheduling is a common complaint for the Florida Atlantics of the world because teams that can help them don't really want to play them. Is um especially for for teams like that. We we talk about the transfer portal and how it affects their personnel. Certainly now year to year. Sure. How does it now affect their scheduling? That has to make that even more difficult now year to year. Especially yeah, if you believe really... you have a good team. Well, right. Um, yeah, I think for scheduling, you know, most most teams have a pretty good idea. Uh, well, the scheduling bit is like football. They schedule like 10 years out. Basketball, you only have about half of your schedule that you can schedule for the next year. You've got openings and, and some of the other stuff. You've had two or three-year contracts that are still around. Um, so you, you have some flexibility. but And you'll have – most teams will have a good idea. I mean, there's always surprises. But we'll have a good idea who they're going to have at least coming back when they schedule. So uh, And, of course, who, they, who they've recruited. But um, but if you're yeah if you're going to take a transfer, you know like Purdue got David Jenkins this year probably after they had their schedule put together or mostly put together for this season and uh, you know he's been a pretty good contributor for them but they were looking for a guard that whole time but they couldn't wait to see if they were going to get one before they. It's uh, Jerry Palm of CBS. He's the bracketologist and he is going to take a long vacation. I'm assuming <laughs> coming up after this coming Sunday, right? Long vacation. Well, I- no, well, if you consider going to the tournament vacation, then um, oh, that's a good vacation we, right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll be I'll be bouncing around weekend to weekend and uh, following the tournament along, and um, and then uh, the vacation won't come until April. All right. Well, enjoy it whenever you do. Hopefully, we we cross paths again. But great job in, in doing the bracketology every year, and thanks for hopping on here. All right. Thanks for having me on. Stephen Holders on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. So, did you have a change of opinion? Now, again, uh, this is just all us throwing a dart at a dartboard right now because things may drastically change. But if you wanted a quarterback, one of the quarterbacks coming up in the spring draft, did this combine change your mind on any level? Hello, Stephen Holder. 
I don't hear Stephen Holder right there. Ah, gotcha. There you he is. What? There it's, you it's go. Funny, the mute button mutes you. It does. It does not it's allow you to be heard. Works. So yes, we got to have you heard. Go ahead. It's, it's weird how that works. Anyway, uh, I would say I don't think I had a dramatic change, but I will say I do think that as time goes on, I am starting to ask more and more questions about C.J. Stroud and and certainly uh, Anthony Richardson. And I, I just wonder, here's the thing. Let's say Bryce Young is the top quarterback taken. And I'm not entirely sure that's going to be the case, but let's say for argument's sake that that speculation is true. I don't know. If the cost is going to be – uh, higher than we think or higher than we thought I should say because it looks like there are a lot of parties that are getting a little uneasy here and that's going to drive the price up now the bears are telling any and everybody that it's going to cost a fortune and they have all these offers and they are playing this the way they're supposed to play right you see the reports and we know where they're coming from it's coming from Chicago they're driving up the price that's what they're supposed to do I saw by the way Matt Eberflus their head coach at the bar at the uh, JW Marriott the other day, scarfing down a salad. And I told him, I said, you guys are playing this pretty well. <laughs> and he, he got a chuckle out of that. But anyway, let's say that's true. Let's say it's going to be expensive. I don't know. I, what I would say is that I, I don't feel like you can – I don't feel like it's a loss necessarily uh, winding up with a C.J. Stroud or – and Anthony Richardson, if he's your cup of tea, you know, I, I have less of an opinion on Will Levis because I haven't spent as much time thinking about him or watching him. But I just think there may not be as much room between these guys as maybe we originally thought. So, so my, my change of thought or my evolution is not so much because of the combine, but just overall time just kind of giving us a better perspective on all of this. So I'm sorry for the long answer, but I hope that helps. Yeah, well, and we'll start right here because if there is anywhere in the neighborhood of that price tag that Ryan Poles put out there that um, the Bears want for number one overall, we, we both know six years or not, changing philosophy or not, there's no way Chris Ballard's paying that. I don't think. Do you? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, listen, I I agree that this is a very pivotal moment for him. I don't disagree with that. And I do agree that he will perhaps do something out of character because it's a little bit of a, I don't want to say desperate, but it's a big moment, right? So I I do think that that maybe the past expectations of Chris Ballard might not apply here. I totally agree with that. That being said, there's – there's doing something that's out of character, and then there's doing something that you could never possibly envision someone doing. And what I can't envision Chris Ballard ever doing is giving up three first-round picks for anybody, not named our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay? It's like, I don't, I don't understand. I, I can't even envision that. I, I don't even know what that would look like. I, I just I don't see it. I just don't. And so, again this could just be posturing and that's what we have to find out are the bears posturing do they not have you know those kinds of offers are people not beating their door down you know that's what remains to be seen 
you know, it's funny. I have just said, and especially after the conversation I had with Chris Ballard on Wednesday, and I asked him a couple of different times, you know, about change. And you guys asked him that, you know, when he had the ownership press conference after the season, you know, you guys talked about, you know, maybe change and philosophies, the way you build a team, the right. way your beliefs of building a team equates to a higher level of winning. And while he said all the right things, I gathered from asking him a couple of different ways on Wednesday, I'm not going to sit here and expect a great deal of change. He believes in that. And I think that other than maybe here or there, some fringe changes in philosophy, he's going to be pretty much the same. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that people around the league, people who work in the league, agents, they were all here last week, talked to a lot of them, <laughs> and a lot of them think that he's got to go for this. He's got to go for it, and he's got to do something big this offseason. There's a, there's a lot of sentiment like that. Um, there's also a lot of sentiment that he needs to be aggressive with this quarterback situation. That, that sentiment, I think, is the prevailing sentiment. And, you know, I don't know that anyone's predicting that – that he gets fired if he doesn't get this right or anything that I wouldn't say people are going there, but, but they're acknowledging the pressure on him. And a lot of it, they, they link to Jim Mersey, certainly having a shorter lease than he used to. That's pretty clear. And, and being a little more on the impatient side, certainly he retained them. So I'm not saying uh, that, that he's under some kind of threat, but, but it feels different, I guess is what I'm saying. It feels different. And, and there is an acknowledgement out there that Chris Ballard has been cautious, perhaps too cautious. I think that would be a very fair argument to make. Um, this is not part of the question, but um, I would tell you, you asked me earlier, I just wanted to kind of circle back. You asked me earlier whether the combine changed my opinion of anything. The one thing I would say is, uh, so I have a new story out. I spent – a good bit of last week with Anthony Richardson. And this was kind of something we arranged his camp and I, and we, I wanted to kind of shadow him as much as possible last week. And when you do that, you get a lot of insight into someone, right? And I will tell you, I learned a couple of things through that experience. And I'm talking about following him, you know, after hours, as he's getting ready uh, for his workout, uh, after his interviews, all that stuff, right? you know, sort of out of the, out of the, the light of the cameras. And you learn a little bit about someone. And, and what I learned about that situation is a couple of things. Number one, I think that there are, I know, I should say, I know there are multiple teams in the top 10 that are really serious about Anthony Richardson. That is a hundred percent true. The other thing I would say is that I have, because I've spent a lot more time thinking about him and learning about him, I'm telling you, I really think the upside there is, is something not to be ignored. I'm not saying the Colts are going to trade up to go draft him. I'm just saying uh, he's going to be in play. He's going to be in play in that top ten, maybe even the top five. That I, is yeah, not a dramatic right. statement. I'm I, telling you now. I, I agree with you on that. I, if you were asking me right now to wager, I would say that the first four picks are going to be quarterbacks here. 
I I, th- I bet you he gets up inside that that top five, the first four, because be I think that somebody's going to get up. Somebody's going to take what the Bears want to get up to one. We know what the Texans are going to do, and then I think somebody is going to be so absolutely floored by the athleticism showed and what could be in the future at quarterback with Richardson. Somebody's going to slide up there and get in front of the Colts and select him. And then, as I mentioned, I, th- I bet I would if again this is just right now. Uh, I think it's going to be Levis here at four. Well, it's interesting. I'll tell you what, I think it's going to be a dog-eat-dog kind of deal. It very well could be, at least, because there's a lot of teams with some big need here and in some pivotal situations. I'll tell you, the Panthers, they are not screwing around. Okay, They are going to get themselves a quarterback. That is everything that I learned last week tells me that. And and I would say this also, here's a, here's a little bit of a window with Richardson and – I'm going to share as much as I'm comfortable sharing because, you know, some, some things people have asked me to keep close to the vest. I'm trying to not betray confidence. But we were sitting – I was sitting with Richardson's camp on Saturday at Lucas Oil. And, you know, his agents, his manager, we're, we're watching the workouts. They're still on the field, okay? This is a little inside nugget for you. They're still on the field. They had already done the 40. Uh, they were toward the end of the throwing portion. So they were almost done, but still on the field, still throwing. And his manager gets a call. He gets off the phone, and he tells us that was a team requesting some private time with Anthony Richardson later this month. They, they didn't even wait for the workout to end. They were, they were calling him while it was in progress, saying, hey, we need to connect. We want to get with this guy. Uh, we want to spend some time with him. And, and that team, that is a team that picked in the top ten. I'll just leave it at that. Do you think the Colts – have a level of interest in him. And here's how, Stephen, I've described it. Um, and, and while I don't think Chris Ballard's going anywhere anytime soon, I don't happen to agree right. with the timetable in year one or even, for that matter, year two. Because had there been that much of a timetable or, let's say, an itchy trigger finger, uh, Jim Mercy would have gone with that. I think when you give him you know, year seven, I think now you're going to give him year eight and even possibly uh, year nine, even if things aren't translating to division titles or finally living up to – a level of expectation with a young quarterback. I think he has plenty of time. Mind you, I've also argued that maybe that's the reason why they wouldn't have any interest is because the amount of time it would take Richardson to really gain the experience that is necessary to become what people athletically believe he can playing that position. So what is it with the Colts? Would they, should they have interest in him? Well, here's here's the thing. You have to look at it this way. He has... Uh, well, I, I agree with you, first of all. I agree with your assessment that Chris Ballard, while he's under a lot of pressure, right? He is. That is true. Uh, last year was a bad year. He's under a lot of pressure. However, the reality is he he's not operating like a guy who's, who's scared to get fired right now, right? He went and hired a first-year head coach who's very young and is going to have to grow into this job. That's another thing that I, I really took away from this combine is that, that – Shane Steichen is going to have to grow into this job. There's a lot he doesn't know, and I think he's aware of that. But my point is, it, I'm not saying it's a risky hire, but I'm saying it, it may take some time to, to determine whether it's a good hire, right? I mean, he's not a sure thing, right, to the extent that you can even find a sure thing. But he's not a sure thing. So that doesn't strike me as a guy who's, who's under the gun. 
And then, as you said earlier, I mean, he certainly isn't talking or operating like a guy who's going to uh, completely change gears in how he functions in, in free agency, for example, right? So, so I agree with you. He's not operating like a guy whose job is literally on the line right now. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, you asked me, do the Colts have interest in him? That answer is absolutely yes, first of all. Undoubtedly, that is yes. Now, does that mean they will pick him? No, of course not. But the case for picking Anthony Richardson if you're the Colts is, I would presume, you know, it would be more likely at number four. But the, the case there is this. Uh, you've got to do something bold. And, and Chris Ballard has never really done anything bold. And I think that would be a bold move. I mean, you look at – I talked about this um, on an ESPN podcast today, and I'll repeat it here. The, the look at 2017. Look at the 2017 draft. Okay, the Bears go and take Trubisky, I think, at number two overall, right? Um, now, the Chiefs, they took, they took Patrick Mahomes at number 10. But there's more to that story. What did they do? They traded up and went and got him at number 10. And there was, remember, at the time, this guy had played in the air raid offense. We didn't know what he was going to be translating – to a pro offense for him was, or at least projecting him to a pro offense was very difficult at that time. And not everybody was, was in on him. And so that bold move paid off. All right. And you, then you, you look at even Jalen Hurts, while he wasn't a high draft pick, he was drafted in the second round. What did the Eagles do? They said, you know what, Carson Wentz, we're in for $50 million and we don't care. He's out of here. We're going with this guy. After he had started, what, five games, I believe, at the end of 2020, that's also a bold move. Listen, bold moves can fail spectacularly. That's true. But they can also pay off in a major, major way. So maybe Chris Ballard has enough uh, cachet left to take a big swing. He hasn't really taken one. Playing it safe isn't going to get you anywhere. And I think the, the evidence is in the teams that I just talked about. You know, the, the Chiefs and the Eagles for just two examples. Yeah, I mean, you could see a team, too, like the Raiders jumping up there and with Richardson in yeah. mind. That's, I, yeah. I, I just – everybody falls in love with these guys right here. And I just um, – and that's part of my argument is how long that he would take to show signs and, you know, the lesser time with a guy like C.J. Stroud. I just, I just don't think that – the Colts, at least sitting here right now, are going to try as hard as some nationally would expect them to to move up. It would it would surprise me. I would be much less surprised, Stephen, if they traded back, right? And he laughed about that. He laughed about that at a press conference, laughed about that with me on Wednesday. I'd be less surprised. I'm not suggesting he will, but I'd be less surprised about that. Uh, certainly Look, compared say- to what trading up. I just that's yeah. hard for me still to believe. With what it's going to cost. I will tell you. I will tell you this. I mean, I, I think part of the the challenge here, and in, in knowing what to do and how to how to proceed, part of it is understanding the the landscape. So there's going to be a lot of effort by a lot of teams. I think to get some intel. What are teams doing? What are they talking about? Who are they talking about? Now that's sometimes hard to ascertain. But if you're good, if if your scouts are good and you're and your information is good, your relationships are good, 
sometimes you can glean some of that. That's going to be critical here because I, I think it's not just about what the Colts are going to do. It's also about what everybody else around them is going to do. <laughs> okay. And I've already told you, I mean, the, the Panthers are not kidding around. I, I really think they're ready to strike. I don't know what their, their ammunition looks like, their, their trade uh, or their potential picks that they could swap. I, I have to, I'd have to look at that closer, but you've got them, you know, Seattle is kind of looming there. They have picks. Uh, so uh, there are teams that they have to worry about, frankly. There are teams they have to worry about. It's not just do they or do they not go up to number one or number two or three. That's, that's not the question. The question is what is everybody else going to do and what does that do to the quarterback market? Well, And, and I was kind of curious about this too. What do you think the, the Titans are up to? I know that, that Rand Carthon is their new general manager and he said all the right things regarding Ryan Tannehill. But you know, obviously uh, they've cut ties with, with Taylor Lewan. Um You look at Running back Derrick Henry, there are rumors that they would like to try to move him. I don't know what the market will be right there. It's not so much what they're going to get in return. It is a, a change in philosophy. And if you're going to change philosophy, Ryan Tannehill is is a guy that's a starter right now that they don't like too much. And Malik Willis, I know it's been one year, but you got a new general manager. And maybe he doesn't like what John Robinson liked a year ago. I'm just kind of curious what they may be playing in Nashville drafting where they're drafting coming up in the spring. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's interesting the, the Titans are not a team we've talked about a lot, but you know, they're sitting there, I think with the number 11 pick and this is also a pivotal time for them. I mean, they have had, uh, they took a big step back last year and as you said, I don't know what the next step for them is. Is it a, is it to continue to try to maintain the status quo, or with the new general manager, do they tear this down and and maybe try to rebuild and try to start over? I mean, if they're truly shopping Derrick Henry, then I think that suggests the latter. So it'll be interesting. I, I think they're a team we haven't talked about enough, but maybe we should be. I mean, they are. They're, they're within striking distance to do something at quarterback if they want. Now, I, again, I'm like you. I, I know Malik Willis is there, but at the same time, I mean, you, you've got a new general manager. And I, I just don't think that matters as much to him. And then you've got uh, just a, a, a third-round pick invested in Malik Willis, right? So, I mean – what difference does it make, in my opinion? Huh? So we'll have to see. They have to figure something out with Tannehill if they were to do that, I would imagine. But they're at a pivotal moment as well. I want to get back to a Stephen Holder of ESPN.com on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. The points we were making regarding Chris Ballard. I think the only way that Jim Mercer goes to the level of, all right, I can't take it anymore, is if this pick turns out to be after you know a year and a half or so, kind of a Zach Wilson type of deal. If it looks like that yeah. and there is no hope, then then maybe the, the process of exodus is is expedited a little bit. Otherwise, yeah, I think you're looking at two or three years, uh, whether you're for it or against it, uh, two or three years. So it, uh, to me, it's it's almost with, with Chris in mind, it's, it's kind of a reboot after six years, right? He's going to get everything on the table and handle things the way that he wants to handle it. And I think outside of having a Zach Wilson type of situation, he's going to get longer than a lot of people sit around here and think right now. 
I I will say I agree with you. Uh, and now, a catastrophe of some kind will get you fired, right? I think something like that, all bets are off. I agree with that. Uh, but I also agree with you generally that this is not – uh, you know, or, or do or die year. I do think it's a big year, and and they have to change the trajectory. You know, if this was a complete catastrophe of a season, that might be different. But when you hire a new coach, I think that resets things a little bit. I mean, that alone. I mean, that's it's not that hard, frankly. I mean, you hired a new coach, Jim Mercy. Let him have the coach that he wanted. Uh, you you can't let him hire a new coach, and then if the results don't come immediately in year one, say all right, you're out of here. I mean, that's that's very unlikely, I think. It just seems very unlikely to me. Uh, as much as Jim Mercy was out of character last year, and he was very, very much. Um, two things. Number one, he does not like the characterization that he's this meddling. No, he didn't, he didn't like that at all. Not he at all. It. Yes. And I know this because I've been told, okay, because <laughs> that message has been sent, okay? Let me just put it that way. And so the, the reason I bring that up is because – it's not what he wants to be. You know what I'm saying? That is not who he wants to be. It's not what he wants to be known for. Uh, he cares very much about how he's viewed. So I don't think you're going to see a continuation of Jim Mercer being that way. And so it, it bolsters the argument that you're making. And I agree with you, which is that this is going to be slow and steady. It doesn't mean that the progress will be slow and steady, but I mean the evaluation of, of Chris Ballard, I think, will be slow and steady. I don't think this is going to be a do-or-die, as I said, season for Chris Ballard. No, he didn't like being described as the, the ring leader of the the biggest no. clown show in the NFL last year. Didn't like that no. at all. And, you know, that's all everybody says. And, and, you know, that's what you talk about rebuilding. That's a part of the rebuild. And in terms of the confidence in the fan base, that plays a role. I mean, Chris Ballard is going to say, eh, it doesn't matter to me, whatever. Yeah, deep down inside, it does. It matters to him. It matters to people over there. And it matters to his owner. So it, it does matter. And that's why signs need to be shown. Not necessarily winning a division title or anything like that, but just those moments where you go, all right, this is now going in the right direction. All right, this guy's the right pick. All right, here's believability for the long term that we didn't have an ounce of a year ago. Yeah, and I think, frankly, I hope they have learned a lesson, the Colts. And, and that lesson, what I mean by that is, you know, they, they have taken this, this sort of quick fix approach uh, change the quarterback, or move a couple chairs around, uh, a few musical chairs, and, uh, and we'll be good to go. And that's never been the case, right? I mean, they, they came – I guess the closest they came to that was maybe the year with Phillip Rivers, but, I mean, they didn't win a playoff game ultimately, right? So what difference does it make? Good year, nice year, but didn't get you anywhere, right? So what I'm saying now is, look, I think the reality is they have to stop thinking like that. And this has to be – I'm not saying it's a rebuild because they still have enough good players. They have a good defense. Uh, they have some pieces. And, I mean, they still have Jonathan Taylor, who we never talk about, right, just because last year was a bad year. But so it's, not, it's not a rebuild, but it's, it's definitely a reset for sure. And, and I think the, the, the expectations, and, then, and Chris Ballard talked about this. He talked about managing expectations. They have been absolutely, utterly horrible at that for years, okay? And part of that's the owner's fault. But you keep talking about the Super Bowl, and he ain't the only one, okay? They all did. 
You keep talking about the Super Bowl, people are going to hold you to it, man. <laughs> okay? And the truth of the matter is they, they really weren't that team. And, and so let's take this step by step, get the quarterback right. And if that happens this year and your offense gets on track, that I think is a success. However many games they win, I mean, they, they can't – they can't win three games and call it a success. But if you can get the quarterback right and you can show yeah. your offense is headed in the right direction, I think that's a win in 2023. Yeah, I just uh, – I, it, <laughs> I know it's tough It is because normally when you're going into year number seven, if you're a general manager, you have credentials like, you know, John Schneider, you know, somebody like that in NFL circles. And, right. And it's far from it. But uh, people are just going to have to get used to that particular thing uh, as far as approaching free agency uh, approaching what, what, what is the date in which we're going to see matt ryan jettison here well i checked today i believe it's next friday, next friday. That, yeah that that money is due i believe that is 10 million dollars uh, i i find it very hard to believe he will be on the roster that day uh, so i would anticipate in the next 10 11 or 12 days here whatever that is uh, that that we will see a move there. Uh, if you if you release him uh, at that point, you you save yourself, I believe, seventeen million dollars. They are tighter than they typically are on the salary cap this year, so that's something to consider here. Now they'll still have to go out and get a veteran quarterback. You're not going to draft a guy and then. Uh, I don't think, at least, have him backed up by Sam Ellinger. Not that Ellinger isn't a qualified backup. I, I just don't. It just kind of feels like you need a veteran. I don't know, but um, I guess you could make the argument that maybe they should consider Ellinger. But um, but in, in any case, I, I do feel like they would be likely to to add a veteran quarterback, which is going to cost you a little money, but probably not seventeen million. So yeah. Any other yeah. trade? I checked that. Not trade. Any other cut? possibilities here any right. names we should be watching yeah I, I don't think any obvious ones i mean i i do think there's going to be a couple of free agents who probably don't come back bobby okereke I, I think that's over i think he's gone uh and that makes sense i love bobby he's a good player but he's going to probably get priced out uh for the colts and they have certainly a, a lot of talent at linebacker so they'll make that work um i don't i don't know that they have to make a bunch of cuts i, I think they'll be okay uh, getting or saving, I should say, you know, seventeen million with with Matt Ryan is is definitely going to give them at least a, a big boost there. So they'll have some dead money left over, but they'll get a big boost, and they need every dollar this year. They they are not, you know, one of those. This is not one of those years where they have sixty, seventy million dollars in cap space. So uh, that will that money will matter. When I asked him last week um, about Shaquille Leonard and if he's going to return to form uh, pre-back and pre-surgeries, plural, and all that, he he responded, Chris did, and I wouldn't bet against him. Which, I mean, you could take that two different ways. You could say, all right, well, okay, I wouldn't bet against that. But at the same time, you can look at it as, yeah, there really wasn't a lot there. So, you know, how confident is he? I guess you can look at so, that two different ways. I have a, I have a little intel on that. I, I did speak to someone close to uh, Shaquille Leonard during the combine, and now the Colts are not going to go on the record and say this because they've been wrong before, right? So I get it. Uh, but apparently, if what I'm told is true, this surgery definitely took, and it doesn't mean that he's going to be the same player. I don't think we're there yet to know that. 
But in terms of the, the surgery having the intended effect, it appears that that is true. I, I do think that they really downplayed how minimal uh, the, the initial surgery um, impacted him. It just it didn't work. It just did not work. And he was trying to push through it, and he was maybe telling himself that he was seeing improvement. I know he said that on the record, he being Leonard. He said that multiple times, that he felt much better after the surgery. <laughs> I, I think that was maybe his, his mind over matter working there. I mean, it just it did not have the intended effect whatsoever. And this one, it appears, did. And I think he's going to be back trying to get – uh, get some workouts done uh, within the next uh, month or two. He should be back working and, and getting back into some drills. So I, that's a very positive uh, thing if that in true, it indeed holds true. Stay tuned. Stephen Holder has a feature regarding Anthony Richardson where he followed him around last week to see what the uh, future NFL quarterback doing, thinking, saying, and such, ESPN.com. Stephen Holder's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline. Always a pleasure. Appreciate you, man. All right. You got it, my friend. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline, in similar fashion, this kind of happened to part of the morning show team, Kevin and Query, weekday morning, 7 until 10 here on the fan. He's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. This happened to Jake Query last week, right? He just well, wouldn't I let did. you in, much like Sean. <laughs> the difference being, Sean was not at fault. I, I guess I was, technically. Um, yeah, I got up. I think most people, well, I, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people that, that hopefully people that are listening in the afternoon also listen in the morning, but depending on people's schedules. But yeah, I got up Friday, John, for the combine. I knew that I had to go to the IndyCar race. Um, you know, I I flew out at like 3 o'clock on Friday for the IndyCar race in St. Pete, and so I thought there was a chance, you know, if I ended up getting stuck, not stuck at the combine, but if I wanted to stick around or whatever and just go straight to the airport. So I got up and just kind of grabbed my credential and took off well I had laid out my IndyCar credential the night before with that thought process and didn't even think about the fact at 6 20 in the morning that that's what I was grabbing and not my combine credential so when I got to the combine they said um you don't have your credential on and I said no 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 I do and I said oh well that's for IndyCar does that count and they wouldn't let me get a day credential or a reprint of the photograph that they had in their system of my credential without a police report of it being stolen. So I said, well, okay, let me start filing out the police report then, if that's what you need. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. You do, do you carry around a police report with you at all times? <laughs> well, I, so I said, okay. <laughs> Hold well, on a minute. Let me get that. If that's what it's got to take for me to get on the other side of that table so I can start my show here in 15 minutes. And she said, well, you've already told me that you didn't, that it wasn't stolen. So I'm not going to let you do that. You're going to have to go home and get it. So I went home and got it. Glad I didn't have to show my police report. Well, I see that 1984, you were riding a motorcycle across the trestle, the 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 railroad trestle. Wait a minute. Part of the whole story. The best part of the whole story is I get, you know, I don't live too far, but it's pouring down rain and whatever else. And I get in my car and it's like 715. And Kevin had said like, well, Jake had to go get his credential. So I'm driving home. And I look down, and you're calling me. <laughs> and I'm like, can you believe this? And you're like, listen, <laughs> you were like Mickey with Rocky. With I know. Like, you're like, just keep your head about you. Yep. <laughs> like, 
don't go don't, don't go jackass right? it's gonna be all right so yeah you didn't have uh you didn't have the two uh big interviews until the nine o'clock hour so you could just uh to chill out the police report thing's kind of funny i can imagine that wait a minute uh, what did you do here in 1982 when you were 12 throwing corn at cars during Halloween? Well, we can't let you in. <laughs> Wait a minute. The, the interesting <laughs> thing was I said, and I mean, listen, the woman had a job to do. I understand that. They have rules. I understand that. I was I was in the wrong. I mean, it was 100% my fault. But I will admit to the fact that you do kind of ask for a little bit of common sense leniency in that situation. But... But I did say to her, like, look, will it help if I can if I can get a hold of I won't say any specific names, but if I can get a hold of anybody from the Indianapolis Colts, come down and verify and walk me into the room, will that help? And she said, The Indianapolis Colts have nothing to do with this. This is hosted by the National Football. Love it. I love it. Man, she just shoved that right up your rear, didn't she? I, the only thing about it that was frustrating is I did go home and get it, whatever else, and that's fine. The rules are the rules. And then I go in there, and, like, I've got to step over, you know, nine mascots and 100 people with tickets from a local fast food restaurant that are walking around. You know, and I'm like, well, how do I not get in? I but, wanted, I, I'd said this. Um, you should just grab somebody else standing there and said, hey, I will slide this back into the door as soon as I get in with this. You know? you know as well as I do, John, that the second I do that, then <laughs> the Colts go and draft C.J. Stroud, and they go to the Super Bowl in his rookie year. <laughs> yeah. And Todd Meyer issues, you know, submits right. credentials for all of us to go down there, and they tell me, uh, you can't go because the NFL said that you were, you know, whatever. So I thought, you know what, this is going to be an hour out of my time, and, and, and I thankfully nah. – Thankfully, everybody was pretty. That was a good job. Good job out of you right there. I got hassled when I was in London to get into Wembley, and I had all my credentials and stuff. They were just in a bit of a, a hassling mood right there. And I got, I literally sat down and started the pregame show um, as it was it was rolling. I thought I was going to miss a little bit of it, but uh, I, I did mean, not, the bottom so. line when it comes down to it yep. is that everybody has a job to do, and they want to protect the way that they're doing their job, and that's it's the way I, that it I, is. I yeah, I understand. That. I respect it. Yeah. So I um, I was talking about the quarterbacks and the job that they did. Everybody was thrilled about everything. Um, and people were thinking, all right, so Daniel Jeremiah says the Colts and the Panthers more likely to trade up so they can choose the quarterback of their liking. Um, I, I would be more floored if the Colts did that than if Chris Ballard traded back as he kind of joked about with me last week and you know what's going to happen they're going to stay at four and draft will levis aren't they that's what they're going to do i don't disagree with that at all i was told i think i mentioned this on the air this morning to kevin i was told on friday who knows there's so much poker that goes on but i was told by somebody they're like no jake i'm telling you i'm being totally serious Ursay loves will levis loves him loves his body size loves his arm Loves his mature, loves Will Levis, or say loves him. Now, it's going to be Ballard's pick. I personally would go with Stroud. I'm going to go back to what I've said all along, and that is the Colts have to assess whether or not the gap one to four in quarterbacks is greater than the gap of what they would lose by moving up. And if they feel like, you know, if they rate the four quarterbacks and they say, look, we feel like we've got a, a 92, a 91, an 89, and an 88. Okay, then you stay at four and you take the 88 instead of giving up 
potential 92 for next year as well with your first rounder. You know what I mean? Like you have to assess what you put, what, what the cost is. And I personally think Richardson's the curveball in all of this to me, John, because to me, this was a, a kind of a three quarterback field. And then, and the Colts are sitting at four and you're hoping that only you're hoping that Arizona sticks there. And so therefore only three quarterbacks are taken in the top four. Well, now, you know, if you ask people, it's a four-quarterback field because Richardson was so wowing at the combine. But the one thing where I would give pause is, and they've got to assess this, you know, the Colts need a quarterback that can play right now. And I think Richardson probably is the one that's going to need the most time to adapt. I think he's, clearly he's very physically gifted. But he hasn't played the position a lot in terms of the, the timing and everything else. So, you know, he's the one that's the curveball in all of this. But I go back to my, my theory if I was a GM, and I'm not, and there's a reason I'm not. But if I was, I would say I would be very hesitant towards falling in love with the prospect that I only lukewarm liked when they were actually playing games. I would be very hesitant to fall in love with a guy and allow myself to kind of be duped just by what takes place at the combine. Because you got to play the game. I mean, there are there's a long, 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 long list of guys that looked phenomenal in the com- – Lila McElroy got a standing ovation in the combines when he did his 40 as a running back. And the Colts got him as a journeyman like three years later, you know, after four teams or whatever. There's a long list of guys that, you know, at the Underwear Olympics look fantastic, and then they go out there and they look like they're playing Battle of the Network Stars. So you got to weigh it out. Yeah, I just I, I would agree with you on the clear cut thing. I just I, I can't sit here and imagine that Chris Ballard is going to fork over as much that reportedly Ryan Poles and the Bears want to get up to number one. And I don't disagree about Will Levis. I just think that they're going to stay there, and that's who they're going to end up drafting. And we're all at the end of this. Once that draft occurs, we'll say, oh, yeah, we could have gone with that right at the start because that's what they were thinking. That's my theory sitting here. Yeah, I could see that. I could absolutely see that. And I do think that they may see more in Levis than others do. I don't know that, but I do think that's fine. Levis, I think, has a lot of – you know, I, I, again, I think I mentioned it to you, John. I can't remember what scout I was reading that said that Levis may have the upside of a Matthew Stafford in terms of the arm strength, but the decision-making and the the leadership of a Carson Wentz. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably not the name you want to be throwing around around here. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens, right? But they need a guy that's going to be – whoever it's going to be is going to be able to play right away. Somebody said the Wentz to leadship right to you? Who yeah. said? Th- who said that? No, no, I read it. I read. Oh, it you read it. Okay. Yeah, I read it. One of the one of the pages. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how you can even draw that conclusion. Well, I think they were saying that's the floor. Like that's oh. what Carson Wentz has okay. become, right? Like Carson Wentz is now the quarterback that people's floor is rated to. Like you might be getting Matt Stafford, <laughs> but you might be getting Carson Wentz. Like, you know what I mean? Like I might be selling you a Ferrari, might be selling you a Pinto. You know who knows, right? After I talked to Chris Ballard on Wednesday, I just came to the conclusion that a lot of his thoughts, his philosophies, the way that he draws up and believes a team can win at the highest level, a lot of what we thought may adjust and or change after the first six years won't. That's what I gathered from that. Yeah, I mean, he he, he said the right things in terms of being open towards – 
tweaking the way that he's built rosters. But, I mean, they're pretty dug in. The, the, the thing that I mentioned to Kevin this morning, John, and I think you and I have talked about this, but this would be my concerns the wrong word, but what intrigues me for the Colts is if you look at the Colts' best players and their cornerstone players right now, you know, a guard – I mean, we know who the players are. We've gone over that. Pitt, you know, Pittman, Leonard, Nelson, Taylor, obviously. But those are all guys that are that have been in the league for a few years, and in the case of a couple of them, have already overcome injuries not once but twice. So you're drafting a quarterback that probably, no matter which one you're talking about, is going to be three to four years from really hitting their stride. Well, then you got to reset all of your cornerstone pieces because those guys are on their way out at that point. So the timing is going to be really challenging for them. And that's the one thing that I've said many, many times. But the one thing that Bill Pullian, I think, did that was masterful was when he drafted Peyton Manning, he, you know, they had Torrance Small. They had, obviously, Marvin Harrison was a young player coming off the shoulder surgery. But, you know, they had some some receivers there. But he was like, look, you know, Marshall Falk, for crying out loud. And Falk still had very, you know, obviously great years in him. But Falk was on the downside by the time Manning was really hitting the stride. And so Bill Pullian said, I'm going to flip Falk and get a younger running back that's going to be hitting his stride at the same time as Peyton Manning. And I'm going to draft Reggie Wayne, even though we have Marvin Harrison, so there's another receiver guaranteed to be hitting his stride at the same time as Peyton Manning. And I'm going to draft the tight end. And so now all of a sudden you had all of these marquee positions that were literally – like the Clydesdales, they were all running in perfect symmetry of one another. And that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But that's really hard to do. Yeah. It's, we'll see. We got a long way to go. That's just kind of what I gathered by talking to him last week. And it's going to take a lot for me to move off of that. Because I just I don't think all of a sudden things are going to change as drastically as some people around here would like to see them change. Jake Query, the morning show, Kevin and Query. That's seven until ten a.m. weekday mornings here on the Fan. He's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Do we know? Do we even fair a guess, or is this one of those dartboard situations in terms of who is going to end up winning the Big Ten Conference tournament, especially? as we focus in on both Purdue and IU? Because I don't have a great idea, uh, visions of greatness or, you know, teams incredibly disappointing in this. I guess Purdue could disappoint by virtue of what they became. But this is like a box of chocolates to me going into oh. later on this week in Chicago. I, th- I don't remember if it was Kevin or, or Derek Schultz that said to me, and it's a great, it's a, it was a great point, if I gave you the double buy teams, you know, the top four seeds, which would be what Purdue Northwestern, Indiana, and yeah. Michigan, and Michigan State. State. Yeah, in Michigan State or the field, you're probably 50 50 safe either way, right? I yeah. mean, because I don't think this is going to happen. I've thrown it out there for fun, so I guess I'll stick by it. But take a team like Iowa. If Iowa catches a hot streak and shoots like they did in Assembly Hall the other night, Iowa could win it. Maryland is terrible away from home, but if they can play the way they have defensively, you know, they could make a deep run. I don't know if they'd win it. They could make a deep run. I, you know, Illinois. I, I mean, Michigan, this is like the prime kind of year where Michigan sneaks up because you, you see Michigan as being the Michigan-Rutgers game probably at least for Michigan as a play-in game to get into the tournament. And this is the kind of year where Michigan, all of a sudden, at least when Beeline was there, would get hot and win three in a row. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, Michigan's in the Big Ten championship game? 
Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's wide open, absolutely wide open, because you have a team in Purdue that dominated all season long, but feels like their most vulnerable time has been the last three weeks. Yeah, I'm Indiana's glad. Indiana's Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's tough to call. Yeah, I'm glad they're utilizing uh, Brandon Newman in the fashion in, in which they are, because that's something I, I had talked about here. But you look at you know both Smith and you look at Lawyer, and you know Matt has been on this show talking about you know you know guys being grinded and kind of tired this time of year. Those guys look it a little bit too. I mean, those they look at. I, I thought that, you know, against Michigan State a couple of weeks ago, I thought the trace for IU looked gassed. I just wonder who's going to get on a run. And and here's how you get on a run is you make shots. You make shots. You feel good about yourself. And then when you feel good about yourself, the tired, the grind, all that kind of goes away when you feel good about yourself. So we'll see if either one of these teams have that in them here moving forward but man right now you, you look across the board and nobody really stands out jake i the i mean you know if you look at the projected number one seeds overall i does you i don't know anything about ucla because i don't watch a lot of west coast basketball i think they're obviously well coached but ucla is not slotted as a one seed i could ucla win it all sure but do they have – I mean, is Kansas the front runner? Okay. Houston can guard the heck out of people, but do you see them doing it for six straight games? So the Big Ten tournament and the NCAA tournament, both to me, John, totally wide open. Absolutely wide open. And, I mean, you know, to me it's fascinating. It's intriguing. It Doesn't it feel like – you tell me, John. It feels to me like both the tournaments, the, the conference, and, you know, college basketball in general – and this is probably the door we've walked through now because of the transfer portals, because of the one and done. No doubt. For all of the different factors, this is probably how it's going to be now, right? Just this round-robin carousel of the, the carousel spinning and whichever of the top four doesn't puke wins it, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you get – I mean, you get all these – you know, these power conference teams, you know, looking over the landscape of, of guys playing in in uh, in lower leagues as to how they can get them at the transfer portal and getting them. Um, Robbie Avila, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. He's the freshman over at Indiana State. He's 6'9", 6'10", wears those glasses and can shoot from outside. I can't imagine that that Josh Schertz, the head coach, is going to have to fight tooth and nail to probably keep him around, I would imagine, as a big guy that shows promise as a freshman and can shoot, can face up, and has a little game inside with his back to the basket. It's just it, – it is such a different landscape with the transfer portal in mind, and you're going to see a lot of that going on just to see who can, who can hang around. So, John, college basketball – is if it's not already there, it is quickly becoming this. And that is college basketball is a professional league with one year with free agency after each year. Exactly what it is. Because every people don't, I don't think people realize that division one scholarships are year to year contracts. The school can release you out of your scholarship at any time. So the player is like, well, hell, Okay. Now, I mean, that's more so the case in the lower sports than basketball, but still, I, you know, and I know there's set out rules and things like that, but, but yes, the, the challenge for the mid-majors now 
is going to be exactly that. I mean, if you get a guy, you know, like Steph Curry. When Steph Curry played at Davidson, there's zero chance. I mean, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I'm not saying that about Steph Curry's. Someone of Steph Curry's offensive production at Davidson during the time in which he played. In today's day, a guy like that that slips through the cracks recruiting-wise and ends up at Davidson and is putting up 27 a game and can score from anywhere and is carrying his team to the Elite Eight, the next year he's gone. He's getting – if he's not going pro – He's getting $900,000 in NIL money from a big-time ACC or Big Ten program, right? That's the challenge these schools are going to run into. So, Jay Cray, the morning show with us. IU Michigan goes to overtime. Biggest shot of the game, and I know that it, it, the overtime saw, even though not from the free throw line, being 0 for 4 down the stretch, but saw some big moments from Race Thompson. But the biggest shot of the game, 59 seconds remaining. Jalen hood with that three that he got. He got a little window of a look right there and buried that to tie it at 69. That, to me, was the biggest shot of the game. Yeah, and, John, we talked about this last week. Indiana's going to have to go as Jalen hood goes. Trace Jackson Davis, you know exactly what you're getting every game. You write it in for 27-10, and 10, game in and game out. What makes them run is how they shoot from the outside. And, and – the mid-range game of Jalen Hutchfino. I mean, that's if, if Indiana is going to make a run in the tournament here, Jalen Hutchfino is going to consistently be that player. We know he's got it in him. There's no doubt he's got that talent. And make no doubt about it, this is his only NCAA tournament with Indiana. And so it's going to come down to that. And I think he's a tremendous talent. And I think it's really come together for him. The question now is simply the consistency of the outside shot. He is going to eventually develop a deadly outside shot probably – He's got a great body for his mid-range game, but that's all going to happen while he's getting paid millions of dollars. That's when that's going to develop for him. Indiana's got to hope, at least for now, that he can put it together for you know an eight-game stretch here. Uh, Big Ten numbers. All right. Trace Jackson Davis, 21-8. Zach Eady, 21-9. Trace Jackson Davis, 12-4. Zach Eady, 13-1. Trace, nearly five assists per game. Zach, uh, about one and a half per game. Blocks per game, 2-9, Trace and Zach. Head-to-head, obviously, IU with a couple of wins. Who's the Big Ten player of the year? Do those stats matter? They do. They do matter. They equate to a tie. And in that case, the tiebreaker goes to the one whose team won the title. So Zach Eady is your Big Ten and National Player of the Year. I, I bet you that's kind of how it's going to go down right there. I yeah. do. But those, by the way, those were numbers Big Ten. I believe Big Ten numbers only. But this worth a little bit of a IU-Purdue argument if you wanted to stake your claim to that. I mean, towards the – you know, it's interesting because in totality, Zach Eady probably had better help around him. But in terms of – the better Robin, Trace Jackson Davis did. Maybe not with consistency, but Trace Jackson Davis is the only of the two. I mean, of the two teams, the only one probably that's going to have a guy playing in the league next year is Indiana, and it ain't Trace, Trace Jackson Davis. So he might have had the better running mate, but it wasn't. But but it wasn't with consistency. I mean, Trace Jackson Davis gets a lot of credit for the fact that he's getting doubled every night. So too is Zach Eady, but. He, Teams had to be a little more honest with Edie. I don't know that it would have made a difference, though, because of his size and his agility and his 
the heart, the, the best thing about Zach Eady, and the, the same is true of Trace Jackson Davis, but the best thing about Zach Eady that I can say is a lot of times guys like that, they they have to learn where the rim is at all times and where they are in proximity to the rim. Zach Eady never ever loses sight of where the rim is in comparison to him. He has a great feel for where the basket is at all times. And so, therefore, you know, Rich Smith used to kind of get lost, right, where he'd get the ball on the low block, he'd turn around, and, like, he, he, his depth was off. He didn't realize how close or how far back he was, early in his career at least. Zach Eady, it's unbelievable. I mean, no matter where he is, he knows exactly how much touch to put on it, how much push to put on it, whatever it might be. So he's virtually unstoppable. When he's in rhythm, he is, and Indiana found that out, he is virtually unstoppable. Well, we can look deeper into that, too, with uh, fishing scene numbers. And this, again, is just for the, the Big Ten conference portion of the season. But that and I think Trace was like fifth in the Big Ten in assists, right? Big Ten conference season in assists. I'd have to look that up, but I believe that to be true. That's he, kind of he's amazing. Had, he's had one of the most remarkable single seasons in IU basketball history, yeah. quite frankly, Trace Jackson Davis. It's been, I mean, it's been a, a joy to watch. He's been nothing but a good citizen and a good ambassador for – as a Mr. Basketball and a representative of the state in Center Grove in Indiana, I mean, he's been a great player, no question. I, I certainly, I do think that he's going to get, um, you know, he's obviously going to get an opportunity in the NBA. I, I hope it's. He reminds me of a Carl Landry. I remember when Carl Landry, you know, you didn't think Carl Landry was going to be a great NBA player, but he was an unbelievable rebounder that could, that, that always would finish around the rim, and he made a ten-year career out of it, or however long he lasted. He played the NBA a long time. And I think Trace Jackson Davis situationally could be the same guy. So, Jay Query, the morning show, Kevin and Query, 7 until 10 a.m., weekday mornings here on The Fan. He's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Uh, I'll get a run here, but uh, IndyCar opener was enjoyable, as it seemed. A little wreck fest going on, but I guess we could understand that. We'll have more time to talk about that in the future. But uh, It was fun to watch for sure. Marcus Erickson with the win, but Scott McLaughlin, Roman Grosjean among those and Pato Award to put out, send out notice that they're here to stay and Scott Dixon's not going anywhere either. So it should be a fun year. Jake, I appreciate you, man. All right. We'll see you, John.